I have a question for you. What would you do if you knew that you had just one week more to live? If you knew that a week from today it would all be over, what would you do? I suspect if you were physically able that many of you would do things that were on your bucket list. That's what I'd do. And that might be a really special long-awaited trip or outing. It might be some killer meal that costs a fortune that I've waited forever to enjoy. Or perhaps it's just a special moment with an intimate friend or a family member. I think those are the kind of things we do when we knew we had one week left to live. Well, as, as we might expect, the activities that Jesus experienced during his final week were very different from what we would experience. And this morning, we're going to begin a new series of messages for the Easter season, and we're going to look at some of the things that Jesus said and some of the things that Jesus did when he knew that he was going to have just one more week of life on this earth. Today's sermon is entitled, The Last Parable. It's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. And I want to invite you to open your Bible so that you can follow along. Over the last several weeks, I've put the full Bible passage on the screen every week. I'm not going to do that during this series. We're just going to have the highlights. So I think it's good for you to have a Bible out and open. And if you need one, you can find one uh, on the rack in front of you. And before we start, we're going to pray, and we're going to continue to pray for Ukraine. That situation continues to be a major issue in our world. We want God to intervene, so we're going to pray for Ukraine, and then we're going to pray and ask God to guide our time in the Scriptures together. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, the psalmist writes these incredible words, these powerful words, put not your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. So blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed and who gives food to the hungry. Lord, the words of that psalm remind us that sometimes we put too much trust in earthly leaders. And so we appreciate this reminder that our trust needs to be in you. And so, Father, we look to you to intervene in this war in Ukraine. We ask that you would bring justice to the oppressed. We ask that you would provide food for the hungry. We ask that you comfort those who grieve. And most of all, Father, we ask you to break the yoke of tyranny and to establish peace in that very troubled part of this world. Oh, Father, show yourself strong in this moment that the world might see your glory. And Father, we now turn our thoughts to ourselves We live lives that are busy and full, and and sometimes we acknowledge that we get very distracted and we don't spend enough time with you. 
And we acknowledge that sometimes we let ourselves get beat up by the challenges of life. And so I pray that that you'd help us to draw close to you this morning and that you'd help us to be refreshed in your presence. May this be a rich time of renewal for those of us who are here, for those of us who are joining us online. Father, however we're connecting this morning as your family, may we be renewed and refreshed. We're so grateful that you choose to love us and guide us through the ups and downs of life and and I pray, Father, that this morning we'd, we'd realize that life is not just about learning to trust you, that life is also about learning to embrace the trust that you place in us. Father, you have given us an amazing privilege by choosing to trust us in so many ways as we're going to see this morning. And I pray that we would live up to the trust that you have bestowed upon us. So please speak to us now and teach us through the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit who lives in us. May He speak to our minds and write your truth on our hearts. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was growing up, I learned very early on that I could trust my dad. And I trusted him to watch over me and care for me. I knew that he loved me and that he always had my best interests at heart. And and that actually made it fairly easy to trust him. And it was comforting and reassuring to have a dad in my life who I could trust. But then when I was about eight years old, he showed me that trust in our relationship was a two-way street. Our relationship was not just about me trusting him my dad wanted to show me in a powerful way that he was willing to trust me. He was leaving on a, on a business trip for a week, and while he was gone, it was my responsibility to water the lawn and to mow the lawn and to take out the trash. And I'd done those things many times under his supervision, but now the job was mine. And dad's final words to me were, son, I'm trusting you to do a good job. And I felt so proud that my dad would trust me to do those things without his supervision. And so more than anything, I wanted to prove worthy of his trust. And when dad came home at the end of the week, his praise for a job well done was all the reward I needed. Now, I know that not everyone grew up in a family with a loving mom or dad, and so I feel extremely fortunate to have the parents that I did. And not just because that I, I was loved and cared for, but also because those relationships in the home helped me to better understand who God is and what he is like. And I'm so grateful that through my dad, I learned early on that trust in a relationship with a parent is a two-way street because then later on when I became a follower of Jesus, I learned that it works the same way with God. Trust with God can be a two-way street. As followers of Jesus, we spend a lot of time talking about our need to trust God. And we do, and that's important. However, we don't talk as much about trust in the other direction. 
Did it ever occur to you that God trusts us just like my dad trusted me? One of the amazing facts about our God is that he is a trusting God. And Jesus thinks this facet of our relationship with him is so important, it's so important for his followers to understand that he makes this aspect of trust the focus of his very last parable. It's called the parable of the talents. Now during this sermon series, I'm going to have different people read the Bible passage for us this each week. And so I'd like you to listen now as Julie reads the very last parable of Jesus to us. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came, and he settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent away from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you, Julie. As you may know, a parable is a symbolic story that uses ordinary people in ordinary situations to describe some deeper meaning. And in this case, we learn what that deeper meaning is in Jesus' opening words when he says, for it will be like. And what's the it? The it 
is the kingdom of heaven. And we know that because right before telling this parable, Jesus had told another one that he said was a parable about the kingdom. So he's told one parable about the kingdom, now he's telling another one. And what's important for us to grasp is that this is not unique to these two parables. All parables are about the kingdom. They're telling us in different ways what life is like in the kingdom of God. This kingdom that God began to establish the day that Jesus began his ministry that continues to be built and will find its ultimate culmination in eternity. And when Jesus has a parable about the kingdom of God and he specifically references it as the kingdom of heaven, He's letting us know that this particular parable has significant eternal implications. So we need to understand that as we engage this story, Jesus is not actually telling us a nice, cute little morality tale about a master and his servants. He's talking about himself and his followers. This is a parable about us and our connection with Jesus and about how we can live as citizens of God's kingdom. And the key point of this parable, the very last parable Jesus ever tells is that he trusts us. And this becomes clear at the beginning of the story in verses 14 and 15 where we learn that this master's going away and he entrusts some money to his servants. And based on the amount of money involved, though, this master doesn't just trust his servants, he trusts them extravagantly. Let's take a look here at this Bible passage. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them, keyword, his property, and to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one. Now, a talent is an ancient unit of money. And it is a significant unit of money. It, one talent was the equivalent of about 6,000 times the daily wage in the first century. Think about that. If you had one talent, oh, were you rich. And this master gives away five plus two plus one. He gives away eight total talents. This guy is loaded. And who does he give all of that wealth to? He gives it to his servants of all people. And now in those days, a master going away on a trip, he might entrust certain key household responsibilities to a very valued key servant. He, he might ask some servant to, to kind of keep an eye on the household accounts. But no master would entrust that level of money to a servant for the purposes of trading and investment. So what Jesus is doing here is taking a normal situation, master going away, trusting in some servants, he's taking that normal situation and adding an unusual twist to provoke a reaction in his listeners. He wants the disciples and the followers who are listening to him to go, whoa, <laughs> or to go, oh, he wants there to be a reaction so they recognize this is not a story about routine life as usual. It's a story about life in God's kingdom where the values are different. 
And in God's kingdom, the master has an unusual level of wealth and an unusual level of trust in his servants. In the kingdom of God, the master trusts his servants extravagantly. And yet, as these servants receive the money, they have to remember one vital fact. It's not their money. They're accountable to the master because he owns these funds. And so, these servants are not owners, they're managers. And their management is temporary until the master returns. And I hope you can begin to see the point that Jesus is making. He is in the final week of his life. And so like this master in the parable, he's about to go away and he's going to go away for a very long time. And during his absence, he's going to trust significant resources to his followers. At some point, he will return. But until then, he wants us. He trusts us to be wise managers of all the incredible resources that he has given to us. And what exactly are these resources that Jesus trusts you and me with so extravagantly? People have reached different conclusions. Some people say, well, since the talent in this parable is a unit of money, then clearly this parable is about how to manage our money well. Some people say, no, 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 it's not about money. A parable is a symbolic story, so the talent really isn't about money. It's about the spiritual gifts and talents and abilities that God gives to us. He wants to manage that stuff well. And here's my view. I think both of those answers are partially right. Yes, it's true. God gives us our skills and abilities. He gives us spiritual gifts and he wants us to use them wisely. And yes, because of the abilities God gives us, we can earn money and he wants us to manage our money well. And yet, I think what God gives us goes so much further and deeper than that. Because of God, we have the gift of time and he wants us to use our time well. God gives you and I relationships and he wants us to invest in them so that they flourish. He has created this amazing, gorgeous, beautiful world that we live in and he wants us to care for it. And then since he's gone, he wants us to carry on his mission he wants us to represent him well and to shine his light into this world of darkness to help build his kingdom, this kingdom that started with the ministry of Jesus, this kingdom that continues now and culminates in heaven. See, to me, if we focus on just money or just our, our abilities, we miss the big picture. The most incredible thing is that our God is trusting you and I with all of it. Oh, he is trusting us so extravagantly and he's got no plan B. We're it. And until he comes back, oh, we have this incredible privilege of managing 
all of the resources that God has given to us. And I am overwhelmed by this. It is an incredible vote of confidence in us from the creator of heaven and earth. And yet, it means we need to recognize that nothing we have is our own. Everything belongs to God. We're not owners of our resources. We're managers. Some people prefer the word stewards. But it's God's stuff. And Jesus says, until I come back, manage it well. Now, our culture, and I think our natural instincts, condition us to act like owners. It's my stuff. But over the years, I've learned that living like a manager actually sets me free. I'm free because I release the ownership to God and I acknowledge, hey, it's all yours, Lord. And it frees me because I stop trusting in my stuff when I stop trusting in my assets. I stop trusting in my resources. I stop trusting in me. And I trust in God. And I simply try to be as good a manager of his stuff as I can be as a way to honor his extravagant, extravagant trust that he's placed in me. Our God trusts you and you and you and you and you and me extravagantly. I hope we revel in that. I hope we embrace that as an incredible privilege. And yet with Jesus, there's always more. That's not all that he wants us to know. There's another aspect to this parable that affects the way we experience God's trust because he doesn't just trust us extravagantly, he trusts us differently. And he points that out at the end of verse 15. Let's take a look. Okay, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. Key point, to each according to to his ability. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus says, I'm going to trust you differently. And so part of us being willing to embrace the trust that God has placed in us, we need to accept the uniqueness of who he made us to to be. He did not make each of us exactly like the other. And so we need to trust that when God gave me my abilities, he knew what he was doing when he formed me in the womb. And with intentionality and purpose, he made me different from you. And this means there's simply no profit in us trying to be someone or something that we're not. Have you ever tried to be something or someone that you're not? I'll bet many of us have. When I was growing up, at age five, I fell in love with basketball. My dad put a hoop up over the garage and I mounted a spotlight so that I could play till the wee hours of the dark and I drove the neighbors crazy out there dribbling and shooting till you know late hours at night as I grew older and older. And my dream was to grow up and be an NBA player and I played on a couple of the school teams and I just lived for basketball. But let's be honest, look at me. <laughs> Do I look like NBA caliber to you. I've always been short. 
and stocky and slow. And so I had to give up professional basketball player as a life goal. It's not who God designed me to be. And there was disappointment in that, but it was also freeing because then I was free to say, God, who did you make me to be? And I could begin to explore other facets of what God had poured into me. And over time, because of mentors who spoke into my life and because of different experiences that I had, I learned that I had some skills in administration and organization. I learned that I had some skills in strategic planning. I learned that I had some skills in writing and in speaking and in preaching and teaching. And by God's grace and with the, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, I've been able to use those skills in both the marketplace and in ministry because that's, that's the way I could be a good manager of God's resources for me. So embracing the trust that Jesus places in us depends on our willingness to accept that he made us different from each other. And he did this on purpose and for a purpose. Many of you are familiar with the, the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul explains this in more detail. He describes our roles in the church and he uses the metaphor of a human body to describe the way that God has made us differently. And so the idea is that if you're an ear, metaphorically, then be the best ear you can be. But don't try to be a foot because the human ear was not designed to be stepped on. <laughs> we don't walk on our ears, we walk on our feet. So much of our angst in human life is because we have a hard time learning to be content with who God made us to be. And oh, if we could get a hold of that because then we won't be jealous of the different gifts or the different roles or the different assets of other people. We won't base our sense of self-worth on what other people have and what other people do. Instead, we'll find great contentment by simply receiving what God has entrusted to us, our character, our nature, our talents, our skills, our abilities, our resources, and then we'll just joyfully manage what we have. And we'll manage it as well as we can in order to honor the God who said, I trust you. I trust you because I love you. Now that's what two of the three servants in this parable do. That's how they respond to the master's trust. And as a result, they prove worthy of the master's trust. Let's take a look. This is a fascinating part of this story. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over, a mut, over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And notice that exact phrase is used in both verses 21 and 23. The same response to two different servants who were trusted differently by the master. Trusted differently, honored in exactly the same way. And what does that tell us? The fact that one servant was entrusted with more assets than the other 
is actually irrelevant. When the master returns, there's only one question on his mind. Have you been a good manager of the resources that I gave to you? And each of these two servants has been a good manager. They prove worthy of trust. And so the master is incredibly, incredibly pleased. It's going to be the same way when Jesus returns someday and we stand in his presence. And he's not going to compare us to anyone else. He's not going to say, I gave that person more resources and you less, so we're going to evaluate you differently. No, he's going to say, here's what I gave you. Here's what I trusted you with. What did you do with it? And so he'll want to know if we took our unique package of abilities and talents and we, did we use it well in the marketplace or in the community or in ministry or whatever walk of life he calls us to. If you're a plumber or an accountant or a secretary or a student or a volunteer, he'll simply say, how did you do with the skills I gave you? He'll ask if we allowed the Holy Spirit to shape our character so that we could be better friends and better spouses and better parents. He'll ask if we helped to take care of his creation. He'll want to know if we built friendships with the spiritually adrift people around us and loved them and tried to draw them to Jesus. He'll want to know if we took the money we earned and hoarded it for ourselves or if we invested it in ways that helped to build God's kingdom. You see, it's all encompassing. We're managers of it all. And we can't do it all, and we shouldn't try to do, do it all. What we do is we act within the scope of our God-given talents and our God-given resources and our God-given relationships. And I can't fix the world, but I can be faithful to my little piece of it. And I can be faithful to the relationships that God puts in my life. And I can be faithful to the church where God calls me to serve and the home in which I live. We handle our piece of it. Just like these two faithful servants. We're faithful with what we have. And we don't worry about others. Because God doesn't grade on the curve. Now what's really sad is not everybody in life understands this. Not everybody wants to understand it. And it's tragic, but there are some people who don't even want what the master has to offer. And they're like this untrustworthy servant that we encounter at the very end of this parable. Now, and I have to tell you, the very first time I heard this parable, the pastor who was preaching said it was all about managing our money well. And, and that basically made sense to me until I got to the end with this third servant and I saw the consequences he experienced that Jesus describes in verse 30. And I can't imagine Jesus calling anyone worthless and banishing them to outer darkness simply because they aren't a good manager of God's money. I think that type of consequence has to be based on something that is much deeper than just money management. What I think Jesus wants us to see is this. This is a servant 
who rejects the master's trust. And by doing so, he rejects the master. I think that becomes clear in verses 24 and 25. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, listen to how he describes his master. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. You see, this third servant views his master as harsh. And he tells us why he thinks it's unfair for the master to reap the rewards of a servant's labor. But that's not how it works. Every master reaps the benefits of the work of his servants. If you're a company owner, company owners benefit from the work of his or her staff. It's the master or the owner who carries most of the risk, so they get most of the benefits of the labor. Yet the third servant doesn't see it like that. And I think it's because at some level, he's selfish. Some level, he, he thinks his labor should only benefit him. It's as if he thinks, I'm the owner. But he's not. He's a manager. Manager of his master's resources. Now remember, Jesus is using this parable to teach us about life in God's kingdom, which means the real principle he wants us to grasp is spiritual. And what he's telling us is that there are some people in this world who view God the way this third servant views his master. And it is so sad, but there are people who think God is harsh and unfair. And they don't want to share their God-given assets. They just want want to hold on to what they think is their stuff and they want to hold on to it for themselves. And rather than joyfully manage what God has entrusted to them, they live in fear of God and they hold themselves back. And this is unfortunately what happens with people who do not understand the character of God. And they don't understand the great compliment God gives us by choosing to trust us. Now, since a parable is a, a symbolic story, we need to figure out how to categorize this third, third servant. What, what kind of person exactly might he represent? He's a really interesting kind of representation because he symbolizes a person who has some sort of connection to Jesus. After all, he's been the recipient of Jesus' extravagant trust. The master gave him a talent, 6,000 times a daily wage. And yet, despite being in connection with Jesus, despite being trusted by Jesus, he really doesn't know the character of Jesus. So he doesn't trust Jesus, and he doesn't want what Jesus has to offer. And as a result, he reaps the consequences of his ignorance of God and his rejection of God. And that's why he spends eternity separated from the peace and joy of heaven. And as I prayed over this and I thought, who do I know that fits that description? And you know who comes to mind perfectly? Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. Because Judas walked with Jesus and he was taught by Jesus and he was trusted by Jesus 
and he took his talent and said, here, take what's yours. He rejected Jesus. Judas was just like that third servant. As I was reading the parable, I went back a ways and the scriptures to look who was gathered there when Jesus was teaching. And it was a crowd that included the disciples. Which means Judas was there listening to this parable. And I find myself wondering, did he have any glimpse that Jesus was talking about people like him? Somehow I don't think so. Because he didn't trust Jesus. And I think he lived in fear of Jesus. And that's why he rejected Jesus. Now, thankfully, there aren't many people like Judas Iscariot in the world, but there are some. And we certainly don't ever want to head down that path that he chose. And so we need to ask, how do we protect ourselves from that possibility? It's actually really simple. We just take the time to get to know Jesus better and better so that we know his character and so that we live in a relationship of love with him rather than live in fear of him. One of Jesus' closest friends, the Apostle John, wrote about love versus fear. And he gave us some incredible words to hold on to in the little book of 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. I want to read these words to you. John writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Who has perfect love? Jesus. And the more we know Jesus, the more his perfect love drives out our fear, our fear of punishment. We don't live in a relationship of fear with our incredible God. We live in a relationship of love because he loves us and cares for us and died for us, and that's why he trusts us. Love, not fear. And if that's the kind of relationship we have with our great God, then we're not going to reject him and walk away. And then there's another really important thing that this same John wants us to know. He wrote about it in the book of John, chapter 15, verses 15. Quoting the words of Jesus, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. And so we're dealing with this parable about servants, but we're not actually servants of Jesus. We're friends of Jesus. Oh, what a great privilege to be friends with the Savior of our souls. And so the better we get to know God, the more we get enveloped in this relationship shaped by his perfect love so we don't live in fear and we don't try to hide from him and we don't try to pretend that we're owners of our resources and protect our stuff from him. Instead, we just live each day as his friends. And we find great joy and great satisfaction in proving worthy of the extravagant and unique trust that he has placed in each of us. God loves us extravagantly. God loves us differently. How about if we just revel in that and find great joy in living each day with Jesus and faithfully 
honoring that trust and being trustworthy. As I think about this, I think about all those years ago when my dad trusted me with some household responsibilities and I, I realized that he wasn't just trying to teach me how to care for the lawn and take out the trash. He was trying to teach me some principles for life. He was teaching me about a relationship of mutual trust between a parent and a child. And that's the point Jesus is making here in this parable. His very last parable. Because he wanted his disciples to get this and never forget it. He's asking his followers to carry on the mission of building the kingdom by using the different resources that he has entrusted uniquely to each of us. And so here's two questions to consider. How are you and I doing at this individually? Are we being faithful? Are we being trustworthy? Without comparing ourselves to anybody else, how are you and I individually doing with what God has entrusted to us? The second question is, how are we doing? We, Thurston Christian Church. How are we doing with the resources God has entrusted to us? Without comparing ourselves to any other church, are we wisely using the resources God has given us to carry out our mission to build His kingdom? Jesus thought this was important enough to be His last significant teaching. So let's take it to heart. Let's ponder it. Let's pray over it and say, Father, how can I take some steps that will help me be more trustworthy? How can we take some steps that will help us be trustworthy? And my prayer is that day by day, week by week, we always will grow more and more trustworthy. Because my prayer is that when you and I stand before Jesus, whenever that is, that he would bless us with those incredible words. Well done, good and faithful servant. May that be the very first thing we hear when we stand in the presence of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the incredible privilege that we've been given because you, O oh God, have placed your trust in us it is such an honor that you, the creator of the universe, would trust us with your resources. And I pray that we would not take this on as a fearsome duty or a burdensome duty, but may we treat it as an awesome privilege. Help us to understand how to live each day with the attitude of managers, not owners. And help us not to worry so much about what you're doing in the lives of other people, but just to be faithful with the resources you give us. And I do pray that each of us when we stand before you would just be content to hear those incredible words, well done, good and faithful servant. May that be the blessing we long for. May that be the blessing that we receive because we have in fact been faithful, trustworthy followers and friends of Jesus. And we pray this now in his name.
Amen.